All right, we're going to open the Word together. If you are in a spot that you need to move because of the sun, feel free. Go ahead and make your move if you need to. Otherwise, we're going to get back into James chapter 2. There's an almost endless list of attributes that separate us from God. A lot of different ways that we can look and see that we are different. God is infinite and all-powerful. We are finite and weak. We have a limited and, and flawed capacity for acquiring knowledge. God is wisdom and knowledge. There are no secrets for God. Nothing ever stumps him like it does us when the power goes out or our cell service goes away and we're like lost. God doesn't experience that. We can only live in the moment and we can make hopeful plans. It is God, though, who is sovereign over the future. It is in his hands. But one of the other distinguishing things between us and God is the ability to make wise judgments, the ability to, to look at something and make a careful and accurate assessment of it. If there's one area that exposes our limitations, it is that capacity to, to make careful, wise interpretations and judgments about other people. We, we often struggle with people closest to us, just trying to fully grasp what they're saying and, and making sure we're interpreting it and hearing it right and, and understanding their actions. We, we frequently make wrong assumptions about why people are doing the things that they're doing or saying what they're saying. And way too often, we are prone to make superficial, premature judgments that later are proven to be wrong. God has no such struggle in making judgments about people. He, he makes it very clear. 1 Samuel 16 is one of the places where he is explicit about the fact that there is no comparison between the way we judge other people and how he judges all people. He's speaking to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, and he has sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king over Israel. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel saw the first of Jesse's sons, presumably the oldest, and, and we have no record of what that son said, if anything, if he spoke anything. We just have the record that Samuel looked at him and judged that somehow this looked like a king. He must be the one. And God says, Samuel, you cannot make this judgment correctly. You, you are looking at him based on all that you can see, which is height complexion, appearance, there's, there's just things about him that, that are sort of taking you over, and maybe you're, maybe you're even judging his resume, but I am looking at his heart. I know him intimately. I know where the internal conflicts are. I know what the desires are. I look on the heart. God judges all people accurately. He is perfect in his judgment, which brings us to James chapter 2. We've been surveying the book of James this summer. We left off last week at the end of chapter 1. And, and we see there at the end of chapter 1, James lays out what is essentially a premise for the rest of the book. And that is that God saved us 
for a purpose. He saved us to be a, as we saw in James 1, a, a first fruits of his creatures, to be people who are set apart for his glory, that we would be distinct in our reception of his truth, in our acknowledgement, in our response to his truth. And so we, we saw this last week, the, the call to respond with a right heart, one that is humble before the Lord, that receives his word as, as his spoken word, the one that has a ready attitude, that we receive his word, eager to obey it, to, to press forward and do what it says, and then with actions and words that reveal obedience to it. So at the end of James chapter 1, where he's addressing transformed behavior, and he's saying, here's, here's, you guard your tongue because your speech matters, but then he speaks about actions, and he says real religion is, is that which cares for orphans and widows, and he's beginning to talk about transformed behavior, your, your behavior matching your profession of faith. And so he brings up orphans and widows, but he essentially moves in two directions. I said this to you last week in terms of actions. He wants us, as we are being changed, to move toward those that the world considers unlovely, those that the world is prone to ignore, and away from those things that the world is enamored with, the things that the world is so attracted to. Seems like whenever we get to sermons, it gets windy up here and everything starts moving around. To put it another way, he wants us to move toward the unlovely, to love them and move away from that which the world loves. And so in chapter 2, he's going to expand on that and, and talk to us now as professing believers in Jesus Christ and say, here's what it means to move toward the unlovely. Here's, here's what has to happen for you to do that. And for you to move toward the unlovely, you really need to confront the, the natural bent that's in your heart that is prone to making superficial wrong judgments based on appearance. Those are the kind of judgments that move us away from loving others, these sort of surface judgments. And James is going to show us what a grievous sin this is, why it is such a sin, and then finally he's going to, to give a warning to those who would persist in falsely judging others. But let me start in James 2, and I'm going to read the first four verses just to get us started. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? First thing he does, start of this discussion, is say, my brothers. So for all of the ways that James will challenge the lives of those that he's writing to and challenge their, them to consider their faith and how that faith is lived out, he is careful to say right from the get-go, you are my brothers. I, I, I receive your profession of faith in Christ and I treat you as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then he writes with really strong language there in verse 1, you cannot be showing partiality while holding on to a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. These two are incompatible. You cannot be showing this kind of favoritism while professing faith in Jesus Christ because they are mutually exclusive. The Greek word there that, that's translated as partiality or favoritism, depending on your translation, it's only found in the New Testament. 
In other words, as, as, as linguists have gone back and looked, they've not found this word in secular Greek. They've only found it in the New Testament, which essentially says to us, this is something that the early church derived. This is a term that they got. And they got it from their understanding of the Old Testament and the teaching of Jesus. Primarily in the Old Testament, it's Leviticus 19.15, which says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial, is what the ESV says, to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. When he says, when you enter into a, a court setting and not to be partial, the Hebrew that those early Jewish believers would have understood, the Hebrew word is really interesting. It's a compound word, and it means to lift the face. You think, what does that mean, and how does, how does that have to do with partiality? It, it's the idea of, of whether or not you sort of look up and give regard to someone, or you simply look away. And so the picture of lifting up face is, is, do I regard or disregard? Malachi uses the same term, Malachi 1 verse 8, and it's the prophet condemning people who would bring offerings to God that are sick and blind, animal offerings that are sick and blind and, and, and lame. And, and Malachi says, if you were to bring those same kinds of things as gifts to a human ruler... Would he lift up his face to you? Would he regard you? And he uses the same Hebrew word that's used in Leviticus. Would he acknowledge you? It's a rhetorical question because of course not. You come to the governor with, with a miserable gift and, and he's not eager to give you the time of day. If anything, he sends you away. And so in James 2.1, when he says you can't hold this while professing faith in Christ, he's saying you can't hold this this regard for some and disregard of others, this favoritism, this partiality. You can't lift your face for some based entirely on their appearance while completely disregarding others because they look different to you. You don't see them the same way. Because that's what verse 2 says. This is not just a question of partiality, but it's partiality based on appearance. They're discriminating based on clothing and, and what they perceive that clothing to mean, the, the jewelry of the one. It's all indications that one is well-to-do and one is poor. One is an outcast. One walks in who looks like he's got it together and, and has fine garments, and another has got filthy clothes. And James says, you, you lift your face for the one and not for the other, and, and yet profess to trust fully in Jesus Christ, brothers, that can't be. Those two can't be held together. You can't do the one and profess the other. You can't regard people and disregard people based on appearance. Now, now pause a moment and ponder this because we, we'd like to think that this is, this is something others do. This is something distant, but I, I, I would suggest to you most of us can go back to our first days in preschool or Sunday school classroom or playground when we first started to make those sort of internal decisions about friend, not friend, and most of it was based on kind of looks more like me. I, 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 I like that person, and this one now looks different, and, and, and maybe not so much. And, and ever since, we have been tempted to rely on first impressions about someone's appearance to decide who to walk toward, who to befriend, who to connect with, and who to avoid or overlook. How often are your first impressions 
your mind's first sort of judgments being made on someone's clothing, someone's skin color, someone's hairstyle, something about their appearance that seems either drawing to me, attractive to me, or, or different to me. How often do, you, do such things come to mind as you evaluate a person? Decide whether to lift up your face, if you will, regard or overlook. Commentator writes this about what, what James describes here. He says, the dynamics of this scene, he's talking about the scene where the rich man comes in, the poor man comes in. He says, the dynamics of this scene are instantaneously recognizable for us. James sketches human behavior that is virtually universal. The rich and powerful are the ones who can benefit us, and so the favor shown them, we assume, will come back to us. No great grasp of cultural comparisons is needed to make this example come alive. It is enacted daily in countless ways. Our hearts are bent toward favoritism, toward partiality. It's not, it's not just that we're tempted to shun one who looks different, to overlook one who's different from us by appearance, but it's also that, that, that tendency in us to to gravitate toward the one that, that looks well-to-do, that looks better off, that, that looks like one who could show us some favor, who's attractive or influential in some way. We may climb right over the other person that we've overlooked in order to try to get to the person that, that, that seems to be more attractive. By the way, I, I mentioned before Leviticus 19.15 as sort of the backdrop for this, that, that call there in Leviticus 19 is saying, listen, when when judgment is brought before you. What he's speaking of in Leviticus is the carrying out of the law. And so when a case is brought before you and the elders of the community need to judge that case, he's talking in the context of justice in, in Leviticus 19.15. He's saying, you better, you better try that case on the merits of the case and you better not allow the appearance of the people to begin to taint the way that you are looking at this. You need to be very careful that you're not being partial based on social standing or ethnicity or dress or level of income or, or anything like that. Don't diminish one or elevate one because they don't like the way the one looks, but you, you sort of do the way the other one looks. The reasons this is so wrong, and that's what James goes on to explain in these verses, is first of all that it violates God's standard. This word for partiality, I told you, it's, it's only found in the New Testament, this Greek word, but it's found in several places in the New Testament. This is the one place where it's a warning to you and I about not doing this. Everywhere else that we see it in the New Testament, it's a statement about God, and God doesn't do this. God is not partial. And so in Acts 10, verse 34, when Peter's called to bring the gospel to Gentiles, remember that difficult scene for Peter when he's forced to realize that now God is broadening the reach of the gospel to Gentiles. And Peter, then it, it says, now I truly understand that God does not show favoritism. God does not show partiality. Romans 2.11 simply says, for there is no favoritism with God. This is, this is what James is warning. You, you are doing something that God does not do. You're making foolish, superficial judgments about people based almost entirely on their appearance, and you're being generous toward one, and you're shunning another for all the wrong reasons, and God does not do this. This is evil. Read on. So verse 5, James 2, verse 5. Listen, 
Here it is again. Listen, my beloved brothers. Here again, he's, he's challenging them, but he's also affirming to them. I love you. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here's another Here's another piece in this, another reason why he's saying, don't do this. God not only doesn't practice partiality or favoritism, God actually does the opposite. God chooses the lowly. You go back to the, the wandering and nomadic Hebrew people, and you see God setting his affection on a people, not because they were attractive, because they were special, because they were in some way drawing God to them. God, in his mercy, chose them to be his own. And throughout Scripture, we see God is not searching for those with the, the best appearance or the best status. It is God's mercy that is at work. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1 emphasizes he chose the weak and, and the foolish and the despised and the lowly of the world so that by that he might bring the things that are to nothing by choosing the things that are not. That's why he urges us to move toward strangers, toward widows, toward orphans, towards those who are different, towards those who are the least of these, towards those who are in need of, of food and clothing and, and basics, because that's what he does. It's not that God excludes the rich, those who are comfortable, but he doesn't give them special treatment either. All are brought to God on, on the basis of his mercy. All come because of the the work of Jesus Christ, not because they deserve rescue, but because God is merciful. Now, James does make a point. We read it in these verses that if you look at first century culture, you, you could look at it in the first century. We read it back in Isaiah. You could go back 700 years, and you could now jump forward 2,000 years from James and come to our day, and, and, and you can see the principle that he has in mind here, that those who typically are guilty of oppression who are taking advantage of others, tend to be those who have more, tend to be those who are rich, tend to be those who, who have the resources by which to take advantage of others, often to the disadvantage of the poor. The rich were able to take others to court and get rulings in their favor. They tended to be the ones who were most satisfied with their riches, not seeking after the Lord. And so he does bring that point to bear. Again, not that God excludes the rich, but he's, he's trying to help them see you're, you're doing something that, that God doesn't do. God, in fact, chooses on the basis of his mercy. And God reaches out to the weakest and those who are the outcasts. All right, let me read on. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I read from Leviticus 19.15 earlier, which is the one that as you judge a case, do not be partial. Don't be showing partiality in that. If you drop a couple of verses in Leviticus 19.18 is where God's law says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There is that statement in the law that shows us that partiality 
is completely incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ because God has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus made it very clear that, that that neighbor is not who we define in our tight circle of neighbors. It is the, the story of the Good Samaritan and the one who, who reaches out to one who is strange to him, who is different to him and loves him. You remember Jesus affirming this and the religious teachers tried to trick Jesus in some way and said, of all of the God's commandments, of all of those commandments, which is the greatest? You know what Jesus said, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. There it is. James had, had talked about God's kingdom back in verse 5. He, he brought the kingdom into bear there. And now he's referring to the kingly law. The law that came from God love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord, reaffirmed by Jesus Christ when he says, these are the two great commandments, you are to love your neighbor. This is, this is the king's commands for his kingdom. Much as when we went through Matthew 5 through 7, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about it being the king's manifesto. This is what life looks like in my kingdom. That's what James is affirming here. This is royal law. This is kingdom law. This is for you who are citizens of his kingdom. But James goes a step further, and he makes the point that, that sort of we wrestle with this with our, with our logic, because in our logic we want to say there's sort of smaller, less significant commands, and then there's the really big ones that you shouldn't break. And, and James is saying in verse 9, to show partiality is to transgress God's law. If you're thinking this is somehow an insignificant little thing that everybody does at one time or another, James comes back and says, you are transgressing the law of God with your partiality. That, that word for transgress, transgressor, was used in the Greek to describe an infantryman who, who went over the line, who crossed over enemy lines, who, who went after the enemy and, and, and broke through that line. And so the idea of a transgressor is somebody who sees the line that God has drawn and breaks that line and pushes forward across that line and transgresses it. And James says whether, whether you break the line at one point or multiple points, you're guilty. You're guilty entirely because the only acceptable standard is perfection. To, to observe the law in its entirety, completely, without sin. You either keep God's law in its entirety, every bit of it, or you have broken it and you are guilty. And we have all broken God's law. This is a fundamental, what, what James is saying here, and James 2.10 and 11 really should be fundamental to our understanding of the gospel and even our communication of the gospel to others. That, that to be guilty in one point is to have broken all of God's law and to stand condemned before him. Now, it's one thing for an unbeliever to be partial, to judge another person falsely by appearances or favor another person because of ethnicity or clothing or something like that. Even when an unbeliever does it, it's wrong, and it's a transgression of God's law. But James is writing to believers, and James is really concerned as he's writing to professing Christians about this whole issue of incompatibility. Yeah, the world may do this. They are just demonstrating their guilt before God. But you, 
you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, this can't be your practice. This can't be who you are. If you claim to hold faith in Jesus Christ and yet repeatedly transgress God's law by showing partiality, something's wrong because you have been redeemed by God's grace. And you're to be different. And so verse 11, he says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Key phrase in verse 11 is that very first part. For he who said. He's just gotten done in verse 10, speaking of the law, breaking the law, transgressing the law. But verse 11 begins, for he who said. The reason God's law demands our obedience, the reason God's law matters is because of the lawgiver. It is because of who the authority is behind it, who its source is. It is holy, righteous God. And so to disobey even part of his law is to disobey God himself. So what verses 10 and 11 do is they, they destroy any notion that's a, a common sort of religious, worldly kind of notion that I can be judged on the basis of works. That, that, that somehow, in the end, if I'm generally kind... If I'm generally fair to people, if I haven't done anything really heinous, then I'm probably okay. And James 2, 10 and 11 say, absolutely not. If you have broken God's law at one point, and he uses murder here, we can go back to Matthew chapter 5 and know that Jesus expanded that and said, murder is, is clear, but it's also important that you know that anger against another is sin. That is breaking God's law. And then James cites adultery. And, James, and, and Jesus also, Matthew chapter 5, said, you've heard it said that, that you shall not commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you look on a, a woman with lust in your heart, you are guilty. Or partiality, murder, adultery, lust, anger, partiality. Whatever it is, you are guilty before God. There is no works basis for salvation. There is no proving my merit to God as if somehow my, my good outweighs my bad. But here's the thing James doesn't want us to see here. He's not speaking merely in terms of restriction. And that's where verse 12 comes in. When he says in verse 12 about speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty or freedom. He's also saying, understand that God's law that's been given to you, is for your good. God gave his law not to just be a series of do-nots that make life sort of grievous and difficult. God made guardrails. He set up boundaries so that you could enjoy the freedom between those guardrails, so that you could run the race and enjoy what God has given you inside of those boundaries, and you could experience the freedom that he gives. Sin is what enslaves Addictions are what break people and bring them into bondage. Those who continue to transgress the boundaries of God's law, they are the ones who face terrible consequences. God's law is made for his glory and for our good. He's calling us to, to follow after him because he knows us, he's made us, and he wants to give us a realm in which we enjoy sweet liberty in Christ. And all of that brings us to the last verse we'll look at this morning, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
started as a command against superficial, appearance-based sort of judgments, against partiality, and, and now we've come full circle. And now he's gotten even more serious with this. We've come to grips with how, how easy, how tempting it is to be partial, to, to work off sort of internal assumptions that we're prone to make as we see others' appearance, to, to want to curry favor with one, to, to ignore one who seems to have less. And we know now those behaviors are incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ, that they are wrong. But to ignore this command is what James is now saying, to ignore this to persist in this, to continue to do this, even if it's sort of a low-grade, low-level sort of partiality that, that just isn't out-and-out out terribly judging people all over the place, but just sort of subtly says, nope, not, not going near that person, or wow, I, I sure wish I could hang out with that person, even if it's just this sort of persistent, low-level partiality, to not treat it as evil before God comes with this warning. The warning he gives here is that the righteous lawgiver is also the perfect judge. The one who has given the righteous law is the one that you will stand before in judgment. God is not some kindly old grandpa who sees us sinning, doing wrong, and sort of smiles and says, that's okay, kind of winks at our sin and says, I get it. You're having a bad day, so I understand why you just screamed at that person. I, I get it. It's, it's okay. He's talking here about transgression of God's law and saying our sin leads to God's judgment. Those who persist in partiality will face God's justice. Now, that first part of verse 13 may sound a little troubling because you've got merciful God speaking of showing no mercy. In his judgment. So what does that mean? You need to remember, this is not written to the world. This is written to those who are claiming faith in Jesus Christ. This is written to those who would profess to be members of the church and believers in Jesus Christ. And he's particularly speaking to those who would claim faith in Jesus Christ but persist in sin and continue to live out practice that is incompatible with profession whose lives are increasingly becoming inconsistent in terms of the truth they profess, and they are continuing to transgress God's law and live as if it's okay, as if God has a requirement here to show me more grace on account of that. That's who this admission is meant for, this admonition is meant for. It's saying, if you keep this up, you will experience the fullness of God's justice. You will experience the, the full punishment for your sin. When he says, without mercy, he's talking about a judgment that comes for one who is not a believer. And the warning here is if you continue to act like an unbeliever, despite your profession of faith, the judgment will be merciless because the time for mercy will have passed. God says there will be no mercy for those who mock his gospel by claiming to believe it and yet being okay with breaking his law. There is mercy to be found in the death of Jesus Christ. If you will put your faith in his death and resurrection, believing that he died for your sins, there is mercy. But remember what James said in, in chapter 1, and he's going to repeat again in the passage we'll pick up next week in verse 14, and that is that this must be a genuine faith, and if it's a genuine faith, it is, it is receiving God's word. 
It is ready to respond to God's word. It is being changed by God's word. That's, the, that's what accompanies genuine faith. Without genuine faith in Christ, you are not only guilty as a lawbreaker, but you will feel the full weight of the punishment for your sin. That's why verse 14 is going to go on and ask, how can you persist in sin in a way that's incompatible with claim to faith in Christ? Stubborn rebellion does not walk hand in hand with faith in Christ. That's, that's why this warning, James 2.13, is so severe. We who, we who have heard the gospel, we who have been told about Jesus Christ, that he died and suffered on the cross for our sin, should not trifle with God's law as if we can sort of pick and choose, decide that this is less significant than this, not so worried about carrying on with this sin because we'll just squeeze a little more grace from out of God. He, he's not graceless toward his children. We know that. He is abundant in his grace toward us. But he's also not tolerant of arrogant sin that mocks his grace, that acts as if I can do what I please and yet somehow continue to go back to, I raised a hand, I prayed a prayer, I made a claim, and, and I know I'm his, and therefore all is well, and I can now live as I please without regard for him. Because he is a righteous lawgiver and a righteous judge. Fortunately for us, he doesn't end on that phrase. He ends verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. James is telling the truth. God is righteous. His law is righteous. He holds you accountable to it. This behavior is incompatible with it. You cannot persist in this and claim faith in Jesus Christ. If you do, there is no mercy for those who mock God's mercy, but it's also clear that James is not content to end the discussion at that point. In the end, those who believe in Jesus Christ will have a faith by God's grace and by the working of his spirit, those who truly believe in Jesus Christ will have a faith that is accompanied by works. And so when they commit partiality, they will be convicted of it. They will be brought to see it for what it is. And they will be moved by his truth and his spirit to confess their sin and repent of it and to know that because of Christ's suffering, there is mercy for forgiveness. Mercy is still held out for us to receive but I would suggest to you, just in closing, there's also a horizontal aspect to this, too. When he says mercy triumphs over judgment, I've given you the instance of we being the offender and needing to repent and find mercy from God. But sometimes we're the offended. We're the one who's been subject to someone else's partiality, someone else's false judgment about us, someone else's sort of superficial judgment. That, that sin of partiality almost by definition means an offense against another person. If, if we judged someone as unworthy of our attention by virtue of their appearance, we need to repent and ask forgiveness, but mercy is needed. When you're the offended, this is an opportunity for us to reflect the mercy of God and show mercy back to the one who has made that partial judgment and is now coming and asking for forgiveness, because ultimately, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. His law is, is true, and it is right, and it is strong, and we are guilty as those who have broken it, but by the mercy of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is extended to you. And if this morning you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, then, then I am here to tell you that God's word says you are guilty before God. And 
The answer for that guilt is that Jesus Christ came and was sinless. He fulfilled the law in its entirety and then died on the cross to take the place of sinners and experience God's judgment against sin. So that those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, those who acknowledge their sin and put faith in Jesus Christ might receive forgiveness and eternal life. And that is for you. That, that mercy is extended to you this very day in the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he urges you to come and to obey and to trust in him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for mercy. Lord, everyone here who has already taken together the the bread and the cup has been reminded of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that we do not stand before you on our own merit. We are lawbreakers and accountable for our sin and guilty on a, uh, because of it. But it is because Jesus Christ gave his life and shed his blood to provide the atonement for our sin that your wrath would be satisfied. And that we would receive mercy. And so, Father, those here who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we thank you. We, oh, we praise you for what you have done and who you are. And we pray that you would help us to live in a manner that our lives would be consistent with our calling, that our, our faith in Jesus Christ that we would profess would, would show itself in our obedience to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love neighbor as self. We pray for your help to do that, for your grace, for your spirit. We thank you for your truth that teaches us these things. Lord, I pray that we would be a congregation that would love mercy and that would despise partiality. Help us as we are moving about amongst our neighbors and our coworkers and our community to not be those who would make these kinds of false appearance-based judgments, but that we would demonstrate the love of Christ, that we would be uniquely different and drawn even toward the unlovely. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, that, that maybe they've tried to, to live by that good deed sort of scale, that if they can just make the good outweigh the bad, all will be well, I pray that this portion of your holy word has made it clear that to be guilty in part is to be guilty of all and to stand condemned and that the only hope is found in Christ. Would you draw them to yourself to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior? It is in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.